Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for overlooking our sin, for granting us freedom. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. If you were to be um, given the knowledge of how you were going to die when that time comes, uh, what would you do? How would you want to end your life? More and more these days, we actually have some knowledge about that as we have things like cancer and other illnesses that give us some clue. Um, you ever thought about that? Most of us don't think about it till the end. As I've walked with people that are very near the end of life, I've noticed they have a, a much greater preoccupation with that. My own father, friends, and family, and people that I've known. Um, if you were to be in the, toward the end of life, and you know that your death was going to uh, involve pretty extreme pain. Um, today we have ways of taking care of that pain. How would you want to end your life? What would you want to be known for at the end? What would you want people to say? As we journey together toward Easter through the season of Lent, we'll be, we're going to be reflecting on the seven last words or statements of Christ on the cross what John, the Apostle John, calls um, his final hour. He's hanging on the cross. I was talking to Mark and that uh, in a Protestant church, we typically have a cross, not a crucifix. And uh, this is the appropriate time to actually have the crucifix. None of us have one. We need one because, uh, because for the next seven, six weeks, we're going to be focusing on Christ hanging on the cross in that final hour, the final hour of his life when he already knows it's, it's done, his life is finished. All he has to do now is finish it out and endure. I'm not sure that I would finish my life the way he did, with dignity and poise and character, um, especially under the extreme pain that he was under, but that's how he did it. We're doing this, uh, focusing on Christ and these seven last statements in order to provide a shape for our journey, a structure for us to move toward Easter, because this hour is a very important hour in our theology and what we believe. In this hour, the hardest things in the universe took place for Christ. This is where he took on the burden for all of our sin. This is where he became our sacrifice. This was the last part of the process of him becoming our high priest. This is where he suffered the shame and the humiliation for us. All too often when we come to the scriptures, we jump immediately to the question, what does this mean for us? How do we apply it? That's very common in our tradition, isn't it? Sadly, though, in doing this, we often make ourselves the lead characters in Scripture rather than our great God. The moment we start asking, what does it mean to us, we've shifted the focus away from God to us. For the next six weeks, as we focus on Jesus' words from the cross, I want us to marvel at his grace and his mercy and his love, the things that he did, the price that he paid, and to capture a sense of how difficult this would have been, how much of a challenge it would have been. So throughout this season of Lent, we will keep Jesus at the center of the story by focusing on his seven last statements. So the passage that we read was from Luke 23, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. So let's take a moment and I want you to grasp the context so you can make sense of these words. Crucifixion was one of the most uh, po uh, worst possible forms of execution the world has ever seen. It was deliberately designed to be slow, 
that was deliberately designed to be painful, humiliating, shameful in every way that you can imagine. It involved incredible torture. Everything from the uh, wrenching of the limbs as they, as they dropped the cross down to the nailing of the hands or the tying off, the roping of the hands. Both were common practices. The Gospels tell us that in Jesus' case, they, they drilled the nails through. It involved uh, asphyxiation. Usually that's how they died. That was the end process. Um, because as you were hanging, you, you got to the point where you were too fatigued and too much in pain to stand up and take a breath. And to make sure that that is the way you died, they would usually come by and break your legs so that you could no longer support yourself. There's no very few places where execution in our history of our world is more torturous than this. These two, when they were combined, just made it amazing, amazingly painful, amazingly hard. In addition to that, if that wasn't enough, they deliberately shamed you. They took your clothes off. They made you a spectacle for people to walk. We have a record of people that would actually come just for the crucifixions because it was more kind of like a party. And um, they deliberately made it as humiliating, embarrassing, shameful as they could. It's a terrible way to die, just a terrible way. And of course, it was reserved for the common criminals and those of the lower caste or the lower class. Those that were higher class would not suffer this form of indignation. It's a terrible way to die. Now, when you look at the four Gospels, they give us very little of this information. They don't focus on those grisly details. They don't focus on the excruciating pain. They don't focus on the, um, the horrible way that Christ died. They did that on purpose because they wanted to emphasize and highlight for us the true work of Christ on the cross, the dignity with which he um, suffered that shame, the love that he displayed toward us, the forgiveness in this passage here that he extended, the honor with which he died. What makes it so stark and glaring was that in the first century, if you had read these accounts, you would have known the details. And so it would have surprised you that the authors did not include the details. From our standpoint today, our vantage point, we read it not knowing the details. And so we just read about the death of Christ and it passes by. So I want you to capture a real sense of the horrible, excruciating death that he went through. Therefore, when we focus on what Christ actually did, it's very meaningful. There's a stark contrast. The authors didn't have to tell the details because you would have known it. You would have seen it. You would have experienced it. You may have had someone you know die that way. So you already knew the excruciating details. So that's the context regarding his life. But this, this story here in Luke shows us something else. Jesus is surrounded by those who are mocking him. This is a whole different context for forgiveness, granting forgiveness. I find it hard to forgive people truly when they're sorry, when they repent, much less when they're not repentant. And they're mocking and shaming and insulting and honoring. The leaders in uh, verse 35 the leaders sneer at him, and they say, uh, verse 35, the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, or in the reading, if he is Christ's God, Christ and Messiah are the same word, the anointed one. So let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. But the soldiers, they mock him as well, verses 36 and 37. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar, and they said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. And then you had one of the criminals, if that's not enough. The criminals were crucifying, who crucified with him. One of them insulted him in verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. These are statements of mocking, scorn, insult, humiliation. And if that's not enough, if you're familiar with the trial that Jesus went through, you know that the trial itself was a mockery. They beat him. They shamed him. They uh, dishonored him. They mocked him all through that. So the whole story from the time they arrested him until the time he died was a statement of humiliation and shame, dishonor, scorn. The distance between Jesus and his opponents has never been clearer than at this second right here. What he stands for versus what they stood for. And it's in this context that he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. I want you to pause for just a second, and I want you to think of a person that has been very difficult for you to forgive. Someone that has hurt you so deeply that it's almost impossible for you to say, I forgive you. Father, I forgive you. And yet Jesus does it right here on the cross at the most excruciating time of his life in the context of the greatest shame and dishonor. And he asks, please with the Father, for forgiveness. Well, why is forgiveness so important? Luke's the only author to record this statement by Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Why was forgiveness so important to Luke? Well, when we work our way through Luke, what we find is forgiveness is a major theme for Luke. He talks about it in ways that are common to the other Gospels and in ways that are unique. And I'm going to take you on a short journey through Luke so you can grasp how important it was to Luke. If you want to follow along, oh, there's Bibles there. We're going to start in Luke chapter 1. We're going to start with Zechariah. You may remember Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. We looked at during Advent, we looked at his prophecy or the song that he wrote about his son and the wonderful things that he had to say about God and the Messiah. So in Zechariah's prophecy, he connects salvation with the forgiveness of sins. Luke chapter 1, verse 76. And you, my child, and this is talking about John the Baptist, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus, to prepare the way for him. Verse 77, to give his people knowledge, the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Remember what uh, Jesus' name, Emmanuel, remember what that means? What does that mean? God with us, right? Jesus is the very name of God. Uh, Yahweh saves. And so he, John the Baptist was going to prepare the way for Jesus to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Entrance into God's presence in a way that brings us life has to come through forgiveness because we have sinned. We have created offense. And if we are not forgiven... There's no pathway in. So salvation comes through forgiveness. And then he goes on, because of the tender mercy of our God, here's the motivation, because of the tender mercy of our God. Um, aren't we glad that we serve a God that's merciful? Unlike most of us, including me. 
Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, that's a metaphor throughout the scriptures to refer to the Gentiles, the whole world. God's concern is for the whole world. During Advent, we went back into Isaiah and looked at that phrase, that God's concern is for all the nations. Not a surprise to you now, is it? His love is for the entire world. So Zechariah connects salvation with forgiveness. Um, Luke, in chapter 3, if you move over one chapter, he records John the Baptist preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But then John the Baptist goes on and quotes um, Isaiah chapter 40. So in John chapter 3, verse 3, he, that's John the Baptist, went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he's calling on people to humble themselves before this, this incredible God who has revealed himself in Jesus. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain will be ma- and hill made low, The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. See it? All people will see God's salvation. That is the desire of the one true living God, that all of his creation worship him alone as God. And we stand here today as Gentiles, almost all of us, in fulfillment of that. He did it. He didn't forget us. He came back to us. He remembered his promise. He remembered his covenant. So when Jesus comes to Nazareth in chapter 4, it's at the very beginning of his ministry. The first thing he does, he goes into the synagogue and he quotes Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61. So in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 16, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read. Now remember, this is Luke's version of the very first thing that Jesus does in his public ministry. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this isn't like opening a Bible with chapters and verses. He unrolls the scroll. There's no chapter and verses in it all in Hebrew, while well, he's probably using a Greek version, he unrolls the, the scroll and he has to search until he finds it, and that's what he reads. So he read that deliberately, that prophecy. Then he rolled that scroll back up, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. I have a feeling his eyes are twinkling about this point. He began by saying to them, today, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, in your English versions, you don't have the word forgiveness. It's actually there. It's in the concept of freedom. Freedom for the prisoners and freedom for the oppressed both have the idea of forgiveness. It's the same word. And so that gives us an insight into what forgiveness is all about. Forgiveness is someone granting us freedom. It's choosing not to hold something against us. We often have the idea of forgive and forget. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not right. It's not accurate. We actually remember. 
Forgiveness is the act of remembering so that you can choose not to hold it against someone. That's what it means. It's honoring them enough to remember what they have done and choosing not to hold them against hold it against them. It's granting them freedom. Freedom. So in this particular context, he has granted freedom for the prisoners, he's brought sight to the blind, he's given freedom to the oppressed. The year of the Lord's favor, the very last phrase, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is in itself self a statement of forgiveness. That's the year in which we forgave all of our debts against each other. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing for us to have a kind of a, a day each year where we stop and say, we're forgetting all the debts we hold it against each other. What would happen? We forgive each other. It's a wonderful thing. So Jesus' forgiveness in this passage includes complete forgiveness. It includes physical. You have the blind who can see. It includes psychological, those who are oppressed. It includes social. It includes economic. Jesus' forgiveness is complete. We've been granted freedom. He chooses not to hold anything against us. Well, then in chapter 5, Jesus, in an incredible story, heals a paralytic. And he begins the whole process by choosing to forgive his sins. Verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friends, your sins are forgiven. Now this causes great consternation with the leaders because they considered it blasphemy. Verse 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's a privilege reserved only for God. And so when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, it would have been a lot easier to walk up and just heal the man. But he makes a statement, a very strong statement about who he is. He's claiming divine right. He's claiming responsibilities reserved for God only. He's claiming deity. And so he chooses to forgive first. This surfaces Jesus' authority. This is very, very early in his ministry. And they begin to get the message that this Messiah is something different than what we thought. Luke goes on and gives a little bit of detail. Verse 22, Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? I'm not sure which is easier. I suppose if you're God, that's a good question. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately right in front of them, he stood up. And so Luke uniquely adds to that at the very end, verse 31, the story of the call, Jesus' call for sinners to repent. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But sinners to repentance. By the way, that's us. It's okay to humble yourself. It's okay to repent. It's okay to say, I was wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. So even here, Luke ties salvation to forgiveness. So then when he's anointed by the sinful woman in Acts 7, another fantastic story, um, Jesus uses her action to surface the nature of forgiveness. He's uh, in the house of a Pharisee. The whole story is from chapter 7, verse 36 through 50, the end of the chapter. He's in the uh, house of a Pharisee named Simon. And so um, when, the, when the Pharisee, 
verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, that she was wiping, she's wiping her, uh, his feet with her tears. When the Pharisee, when Simon saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him or what kind of a woman he is, that she is a sinner. We get, some, we get a glimpse of Jesus here. He's not afraid to become unclean. Because that's what's happening here. He's not afraid to touch dead bodies. He's not afraid of people that are paralytics, people that have leprosy, people that have women that, that have issues of blood. He's not afraid of any of that. He's willing to become unclean for our benefit. He's willing to get his hands dirty. It's another way of saying it. So this Pharisee, fairly self-righteous, says if he only knew who was touching him, he wouldn't have allowed that. So what does Jesus say? Simon, I have something to tell you. Verse 41, two people owned, owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had, had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Which of them will love him more? The one that's forgiven a little or the one that's been forgiven a lot? So Simon replied, I'm not sure he wanted to, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus said, you have judged correctly. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet, me, wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Now listen to this. Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. As her great love has revealed. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Um, this is the very thing that Jesus talked about in John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, this is the one who loves me. Her love revealed that she grasped the depth of her forgiveness. Well, in chapter 11, we have Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, slightly different than Matthew's version, which we often quote. Luke chapter 11, verse 4. He said to them, when you pray, it's actually verse 2, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. This prayer involves a mutual experience. It's a communal. That's why we say it together often. It's something we do together. It is, it's something very personal because we are to forgive our sins. Matthew says, forgive us our debts as we forgive everyone who has debts against us. Luke says, forgive us our sins. This gives us a picture of what this sin is. It includes debt. They're connected. When you forgive someone a debt, it's a picture of forgiving their sin. That's what it is. It's very personal. It involves reconciling one to another. That's what it involves. So why is this important? In the final hour of Jesus' life, in Luke 23, the very first thing he says on the cross, Father, forgive them. Verse 34, for they do not know what they are doing. He truly believed in his mission. You find out what's important to a person in the final stages of their life, don't you? You find out what's really important. 
So what's the first thing he says is, Father, forgive him. He truly believed this mission. Forgiveness is the road to salvation. It really is. Those that are standing there at the cross represent us, you and me. In Acts 2, standing before the Jews, these are the devout Jews, the ones who believed in the one true God. Peter says, this Jesus, whom God delivered up by his predetermined plan, you nailed to a cross. If we had been there, it would have been us. So these picture, these people here represent us. In his final words recorded in Luke, Jesus reminds us that forgiveness was for everyone. Our mission is to proclaim this forgiveness to all the nations. In fact, that's what Jesus did on the cross. Okay? Look, first of all, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. This is after the road to Emmaus, and he's now with the, with the disciples. And he said to them, the very end of his uh, story before he uh, ascends into heaven, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures, and he told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name, there it is, to all the nations. God loves his creation to all the nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. So we are to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all the nations. Now think about how Jesus, who he forgave at the cross. He forgave the Jewish leadership. They were the ones sneering at him. Those are the Jews. He forgave the Roman guards, the ones that were shaming him. Those are Gentiles. And then he forgave a common criminal, the one who hurled insults at him. I don't know if he was Jewish or Gentile. So the very picture of Jesus on the cross is a fulfillment of the entire message of the Bible. He's forgiving the whole world. He forgave the nations. I'd like to close our time and take, have you take just a few short period of time And I want you to reflect on how God has forgiven you. What have you done so terrible that God had to forgive you? Which he did on the cross. Ephesians 5 says, forgive one another because God in Christ has already forgiven you. In fact, that's what we did right down here Wednesday night at Ash Wednesday. Remember? Sign of the cross or the ashes. God in Christ has already forgiven you, so forgive others. So take just a short period of time and reflect on how God has forgiven you. As we move toward the offering and communion, both of those are responses, Paul tells us, that reflects our belief in the gospel. 
our expression of the gospel. So the way we give to others, and, um, and, and we partly do that here in the offering, is an expression of our love and belief in him. Communion is an expression of our unity. We celebrate it together as a faith community. We're going to do both. I'm going to ask the ushers to go ahead and come forward to collect the offering. And I would like to pray that God would bless you. So let's pray. Father, uh, as we collect this offering, my prayer, Lord, is that you would bless these people. They are a very generous people. Lord, they, uh, they give of their time. They give, Lord, of their resources. Lord, they give of their heart. They pray and they sing and they pray for people and they love you. And I know that about them. I know that to be true. So I pray that you would bless them right now, Lord, because of their willingness to uh, support the ministries of this church. And thank you, Lord, for blessing us with forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.